Welcome to the Impact Education Payer Talk CE program addressing unmet needs in AMD and DME. I'm your host, Steve Colusi, and I'm the manager of the Clinical Pharmacy Strategies team at Highmark. This Payer Talk CE program is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources and Impact Education LLC and is designated for 0.5 contact hours of continuing education credit. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and we'd like to thank them for their support. At the conclusion of today's program, you'll be able to complete an evaluation which must be submitted to receive credit. Click Complete Evaluation in the navigation within the activity. Once you complete your evaluation, you must click Claim Credit to download your certificate or, for pharmacists, submit your credit to CPE Monitor. I'm joined today by Dr. Jordan Graff, a board-certified ophthalmologist who specializes in diseases and surgery of the retina and vitreous. He is currently in private practice at Barnett Delaney Perkins Eye Center in Arizona. Welcome, Dr. Graff. Thank you, Dr. Kalusi. It's great to be here. Dr. Graff, I was looking forward to speaking with you today because I have been looking over some data from NIH National Eye Institute, and their data estimates that over 15 million Americans are expected to have either age-related macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy by 2030. Obviously, these are really big numbers, and payers need to start thinking about these disease states. And although there have been significant advancements in the management of both of these diseases, there are really a lot of unmet needs for these patients. So, my first question for you is, what needs remain in the care of the patients with AMD or DME? Well, vision is critically important for all aspects of a person's life, including their physical health, their social engagement, education, employment, their socioeconomic position. Reduced vision severely affects a person's ability to perform daily activities and increases a person's risk of other health problems and even premature death. Age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, is a major public health concern and a leading cause of blindness in people age 60 and older. And diabetic retinopathy is a leading cause of blindness worldwide, affecting millions of people with diabetes and often understood to be the number one cause of preventable blindness in the United States of America. Early detection and timely treatment are crucial for preventing vision loss, but screening programs are often limited by the availability of trained physicians, especially in underserved areas. So early detection and accurate diagnosis are crucial for better outcomes in both AMD and diabetic macular edema. Improved screening methods and diagnostic tools are needed to identify the conditions at their earlier stages before irreversible vision loss occurs. And artificial intelligence might be a useful tool for screening and evaluation of eye diseases. Predicting the progression of AMD and DME can help healthcare providers tailor treatment plans for individual patients. Developing reliable predictive models could assist in determining the optimal timing and the type of intervention that is required. Thank you so much for all of that information. And how about our treatment options? Do we have the kinds of treatments today that we need to take care of these patients with AMD and DME? Well, antivascular endothelial growth factor or anti-VEGF agents have had a dramatic shift in the treatment of many causes of blindness. But now we're looking for ways to help ease the patient burden of the frequent in-office visits and injections and address the unmet patient need for more durable medications. And while current treatments like anti-VEGF injections have shown significant benefits, they're not curative, just managing. And some patients may not respond adequately or may experience a decline in effectiveness over time. So there is a need for innovative therapies that target different pathways involved in the disease process. 
patients with AMD and DME can respond differently to various treatments, developing personalized treatment approaches based on patient characteristics and disease subtypes would lead to more effective and targeted therapies. This may include new drug delivery platforms, longer acting molecules, molecules with new mechanisms of actions or gene therapy. We also continue to look for topical or oral treatments for retinal diseases to reduce the treatment burden. Frequent intravitreal injections, which is the standard of care, can be a burden for patients and their caregivers. Developing sustained drug delivery systems that require less frequent administration could improve treatment adherence and the patient's comfort. So patients report the average time commitment for an appointment requiring an intravitreal injection to be 11.7 hours which includes their pre-appointment preparation of maybe 16 minutes or a waiting time of an average of 37 minutes, treatment, an average of 43 minutes, travel, which is like 66 minutes on average, and the post-injection recovery, which patients say on average is the rest of the day, nine hours or something. Understanding quality of life outcomes is an integral part of the management of patients with vision-threatening eye disease investigating the potential benefits of combining different treatment modalities, such as anti-VEGF therapy with other agents or treatments may yield synergistic effects and enhance the outcomes. Thank you for all that information, Dr. Graff. And, and I think you raised a lot of really interesting points. One of the thoughts that comes to mind when you say that the average patient loses half of a day every time they have to get one of these injections is that Many patients probably get lost to follow-up or cancel appointments or reschedule appointments because they just don't have that half of a day to lose. So can you share a little bit about your experience with regard to how frequently patients are lost to follow-up and uh, what kind of efforts there are to ensure that those patients do reschedule and so forth? Absolutely, Dr. Colusi. I've done over 60,000 injections in my career. It's the mainstay of preventing blindness from macular degeneration and diabetic macular edema. But it is a burden. These are either older patients who have comorbidities or they're unhealthy, sick patients with diabetic macular edema. We talk about noncompliance and treatment burden like it's all a patient's conscious choice, but it's not it's not entirely that. Oftentimes they have hospitalizations, other illnesses, challenge with transportation. Remember, some of them are already visually impaired in the other eye. And so they have to get a ride from a daughter, granddaughter, friend, family member. They may be hospitalized for kidney issues in a diabetic patient or have another issue with a neuropathy or a, a foot ulcer or the older patient population have other comorbidities. So the challenge of getting in and out for an appointment is not insignificant. And compliance is more than just a patient's willingness, uh, although the burden is challenging in the conscious state. It's in these things that they don't have control over that can be a real challenge. And if they miss an appointment, uh, there is a risk of further vision decline. So trying to help them overcome all of the socioeconomic and travel and burden and family uh, factors is not an insignificant burden that we address as surgeons, as doctors. I can imagine that is certainly a struggle constantly with uh, pretty much every patient. So to your point that you mentioned earlier, I think it's really important that we are moving in this direction of therapies that are going to have longer treatment intervals and, and you know similar outcomes to what we're used to seeing in the clinical trials, but without that extra burden of those additional visits and so forth. So thank you so much for your insights on that. 
Absolutely. It is, you know, I'm in private practice, but I'm also a clinical research scientist. I'm involved as a principal investigator in trials. I teach uh, medical students. I teach at the medical schools. I work with a new research that's available, new drugs, new mechanisms of action, sustained delivery devices for long-term delivery, gene therapies. I'm involved in clinical research on a new medications that last longer and more durable. So this is an exciting time as we try and address the next step of treatment burden for our patients. One thing that I think is also very important from that perspective is the idea that we have enough drugs now where we can start to think about this from a head-to-head trial perspective. Historically, right, it was you know placebo or the, the intervention groups, but now with so many proven therapies out there, is there any movement in the direction of more head-to-head data? Because that is very important from the payer side. Increasingly so, yes, as we have, as you mentioned, a larger available options for treatment for the patients. More and more of the head-to-head trials or real-world study analyses are coming up now, and that is helpful for us to try and gauge not just all of the tools in our tool belt, but which ones ultimately provide the best benefit with the lowest burden on the patient and on the healthcare system for that matter. A lot of excellent information there, Dr. Graff. Thank you so much for that. And and the thought that comes through my head as well with regard to the biosimilars is, are they arriving a day too late? So what I'm thinking with that is this idea that we are moving in this direction towards possibly better therapies for patients and that we're seeing these longer treatment intervals and so forth. And so while the idea of lower cost is great with the biosimilars, are they coming onto the market a little bit too late from your perspective? Perhaps that's the great insight, uh, Dr. Colusi, that we're now pushing as patients, as families, uh, family members, as a medical community of doctors and treating uh, physicians. Our goal now is to reduce burden. And so we want those, they're kind of the goals primarily, number one, is to reduce the disease damage to the patient and preserve as much vision. Goal number two is to make it as convenient and possible and reduce the burden. Goal number three is perhaps to reduce cost, and all three of those must be balanced out. And I think that the biosimilars have a place to perhaps not be using off-label, non-FDA-approved medications, which for some time have been uh, still commonplace, but they may be a little bit late in the process as we're shifting our attention to reducing burden, better mechanism of action, durable treatment options, more durable, longer-lasting medications, gene therapy, and sustained delivery devices. That's fantastic insight. And and I think it speaks to this idea of, you know, not just biosimilars entering the market, but also biobetters, which is this concept that, you know, the molecules are the same, but there is something different about the way that they're delivered, or, you know, there's a slight change to the way that the, the medication is dosed and so forth. So that, you know, we're not necessarily seeing new drugs, but we're seeing reduced treatment burden and, you know, new delivery methods and so forth that are going to help the patients in one way or another. Yeah, that's a great insight. Uh, This is an exciting time in treating AMD and DME and trying to improve outcomes and reduce burdens. Excellent. Thank you so much. And and so my final question for you then is what can payers or managed care professionals do to help address some of the unmet needs for patients with AMD or DME? I'm glad you asked. Despite the overall efficacy, anti-VEGF treatments are very expensive. Anti-VEGF injections rank among Medicare's costliest drugs. Ensuring access to effective treatment for patients, regardless of geographic location, financial status, does remain a challenge in some regions. 
So educating patients about their condition, the treatment options, the importance of regular eye checkups uh, to catch diseases earlier in the process can improve patient outcomes. Providing support for patients and their families to manage the emotional and practical aspects of living with visual impairment is also essential. Implementing telemedicine programs and remote monitoring, technology, and imaging can help increase access to specialized care, especially in underserved areas. These technologies enable regular follow-up and timely intervention, leading to improved disease management. I practice in Arizona. I care for our White Mountain Apache, for our Navajo population, or have a Supai or Hopi Indian, a Hopi Indians up in the mountains. And so I travel up there regularly and imaging systems and other doctors in the remote areas sending information to me and getting the patients to me quicker. All of this is something that we can try and do better across the nation. Collaborating with healthcare providers, researchers, you know, payers can support real-world data collection, analysis. This information can be used to understand treatment effectiveness, identify trends, optimize the care pathways. Real-world treatment patterns often do not reflect FDA-approved dosing schedules. And that's a cause for concern because fewer treatments may contribute to worse vision outcome and ultimately increased costs. So partnering with payers and finding the best solutions is critical. Yeah, I think you make a, a great point right at the end there. The idea that we all need to work together for the betterment of our patients is, is always the goal, but it's not always what we see in practice. So Dr. Graf, can you tell us about some of the recent medication advances in this space? Yes, Dr. Kalusi, it's actually a very exciting time where we have, for example, medications in higher doses uh, like the uh, Flibercept 8 milligram, uh, which has been in recent clinical trials and now recently become commercially available, which studies indicate has a longer durability. Additionally, ferisumab, which has a dual mechanism of action blocking both VEGF and angiopoietin 2, also showing increased durability. And both of those drugs show that between 12 and 16 week intervals can be achieved after initial loading doses, ultimately reducing the burden on the patients and healthcare system. And even for payers to consider that if these medications in the real world, and I'm involved in some of these real world trials right now, show that it reduces the burden, then the slight increased cost of the actual medicine may ultimately be a savings for the patient, for the healthcare system, for the payers. Additionally, sustained delivery devices, implantations of port delivery system allow sustained delivery of medicine for six to nine months in some cases with equal outcomes compared to monthly injections. I've had patients personally when I'm in clinical trials or in the real world who have both eyes requiring treatment, one with a sustained delivery device and one getting monthly injections. And then they're lost a follow-up for other health issues. When they come back, the sustained delivery device eye is doing well, and the one that should have been getting monthly injections is suffering and has lost ground. And then, of course, gene therapy, or essentially creating a biofactory in the eye using RGX314, which is a uh, investigational uh, gene therapy to create a, to trigger the body to make its own medication that also reduces treatment burden, at least in the studies so far. So a very exciting time to see if we can get the same outcomes or better with reduced burden on the patient, the payers, the healthcare system. Excellent. That's a, a great summary. And uh, one follow-up question that I had from that was this idea of gene therapies. We've been seeing this across the board with a number of other disease states uh, recently having gene therapies approved. And these are very commonly going to be one-time gene therapies that 
you know, we'll forever not require the patient. I got to be careful not to say forever, but we'll not require the patient to receive other medication moving forward. And that's really where that cost savings in the long term is going to be generated. So this is a hot topic in the managed care space for sure. And I'm curious if you can elaborate a little bit further. Is this a one-time gene therapy that we're talking about where patients will no longer need these intravitreal injections moving forward? It is in the idea is that it is a one and done that you treat and that the the gene product introduced essentially teaches the body to make the medicine that we used to have to inject. Now, this is still in the study environment and currently in the study environment, we're seeing one and less, one and dramatically less, not really the one and done yet, although there are some examples of that. Additional study will still yet be needed. But of course, that's the holy grail, one intervention that cures a heretofore uncurable, manageable, but uncurable disease. And so um, the jury is still out on that, but I'm involved in those clinical trials, and we are all watching that with uh, those outcomes with great interest. And I will be keeping an eye on that with great interest as well. So thank you so much for all of your insights today, Dr. Graff. It is certainly an exciting time for the space, but it is absolutely a lot to keep up with. So payers need to do our best to uh, you know, stay up with all of the changing data uh, on a day-to-day basis, all of the new approvals as they reach the market and what that means for our patients in the long term. So with that, I will now like to open the discussion up to our audience for some questions. And the first question that we have here is, how can payers and providers best prepare for integration of technology, such as telemedicine or artificial intelligence, in the diagnosis and management of AMD and DR uh, slash DME? Well, that's a great question, Steve. uh, Big data and artificial intelligence may be better at predicting the need for injections or the management of care. It might help us to see which patient responds better to a particular medicine or injection, one medicine versus another. It may predict better the time interval between injections, allowing us to extend and removing any of the emotional variables that even the most clinical of doctors have when trying to decide how long to go. Artificial intelligence uh, might allow us to interpret angiography or OCT angiography with greater sensitivity than the human position and help determine um, wet macular degeneration or diabetic macular activity before the patient loses vision, before the doctor sees as much hemorrhaging in the eye on traditional imaging and exam. And so thus, if the payers are open to allowing for and reimbursing some of these technologies, that helps with earlier detection and treatment and ultimately less of a burden because you don't have such severe disease when you start treating it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And and from the, the managed care side, I, I would say that, um, you know, there's definitely been talk of the use of artificial intelligence, um, maybe not in such a positive light just yet, I think we're still trying to figure out the most appropriate ethical ways to implement artificial intelligence into our day-to-day. Uh, you know, there's there's real opportunity in, you know, uh, policy writing and policy reviewing and so forth. But mm-hmm. when you take the humanistic aspect out of it, to your point, Dr. Reff, it's, it's really important that we keep in mind that there is a healthcare provider at the end of it, right? I, I didn't hear anything in your answer that suggested that artificial intelligence is necessarily replacing your role in diagnosing. Would you say that that's a fair statement? I concur. In fact, I've already been involved in some clinical trials with uh, artificial intelligence for the last five years, helping to detect disease and, and using it to get access to remote areas where the doctor is not. 
the technology is a is a physician extender. Yeah, absolutely, and and certainly to to use the term augment, right? It's it, we're going to be augmenting the work that we're doing in the managed care space, the work that you're doing in the diagnostic and treatment space, mm-hmm. and and I think that that's a really important consideration that it's not a replacement, uh, at least in the the viewpoint of our speakers here today, Dr. Graf and I, but more so just in in this idea that. We can make things better by using technology, but it's just a matter of how do we do that effectively while yes. ensuring that you know patients are still remaining uh, at the forefront of our concerns. They're they're still receiving the best care that they can because of that augmented experience. Well said. It's still a patient with a need coming to see a doctor. Perfect. That, that's great. Thank you for that uh, concise summary. Uh, so you also mentioned the time burden of intravitreal mm-hmm. injections on patients. So we have a question uh, here. Any best practices to share in terms of engagement, shared decision-making, et cetera, to ensure patients are not lost to follow up? That's a great question, Stephen. Thank you uh, to our listeners here. That That is, um, I think if we're willing to consider the big picture of what we're looking for, we're looking for reduced burden. The payer wants reduced burden because it's less expensive. And we want reduced burden on the patient, their family, their granddaughter who took off work to drive them to the appointment, the payer pool, and the overall healthcare system. That might require some initial, accepting that there may be some initially um, higher costs with some of the other medications. But some of the medicines like ILEA HD or Vibismo have clinical proof of extended treatment. Some of the future things coming down the pike might allow less treatment, even if the medicine is a percentage higher than the one we've used before if there are less overall injections. You mentioned, um, or the question mentioned, shared decision-making or engagement so patients aren't lost. I think there there have been a couple of payers and healthcare systems that have a little app that helps the patient track their appointments with reminders or calendar alerts. I've had a couple patients who showed up an appointment they otherwise would have missed. So some of those things are helpful too. Yeah, certainly agree. And again, I'll just add from the the managed care perspective, this idea that the provider and the patient are the only two engaged in in care is what I would think is you know somewhat uh, outdated. The managed care organizations have plenty of resources that they're providing in order for patients to um, continue to remain engaged in their care. It's very easy for patients to fall through the cracks, and and I think this is a really important consideration is this idea of prior authorization that. When a patient needs a prior authorization on a medication and they can't receive that first injection the day of within the doctor's office, uh, that's right. a major problem. And so, uh, Dr. Graf, I'm going to you know kind of piggyback off this question and and ask, what are your thoughts on prior authorization? Uh, how big of an impact does it have on patients within your practice? It can be significant. I appreciate the question, Steve. It, um, you know, the prior authorization feels like a swear word to the to the doctor sometimes because you know what's going on. You've made the medical decision. That's what your whole medical training and degree and the tens of thousands of patients you've seen is here's the patient. Here's the problem. We've made the diagnosis. I know how to treat them. And, and we know that it's the standard of care generally. And so waiting to make sure that the standard of care that the doctor has already determined the patient should get is is approved can be challenging for the doctor and for the patient. So, um, you know, maybe a pre-approved list, hey, listen, patient meets these criteria, you should know that this is okay to use this. And the only question is maybe going to a second step therapy. And so that helps to at least start the patient 
on first-line medications for treatment. And then the patient and the doctor can understand that if we're going to a second line or a third line, that we may need to wait and and get authorization for various reasons. That's helpful to kind of have a pre-approved list so you can move and and act and start treating the patient instead of, hey, I'm not sure you're going to get covered. Patient gets really nervous. Now they and their granddaughter leave and have to make another appointment to come back for the treatment I've already determined they need. Yeah, and and that's going to contribute to that non-adherence that uh, you had mentioned, even possibly before the patient gets started. And uh, to your point, you know, it would be great if the providers could know exactly which medications were covered. We we try to do that with formularies um, in yeah. this class of medications. Uh, unfortunately, it's you know typically going to be covered under the medical benefit, which works at a completely different pace in most right. circumstances than uh, the pharmacy benefit, and and so that that certainly can lead to some challenges as well. Not to mention, there's not just one universal payer out there that. Right. You know, if Dr. Graf knows that that one payer covers whichever medication first, he knows to prescribe that one first if, you know, he wants to avoid any barriers. Um, Unfortunately, given the variety of different insurers that are uh, out there and how each of them is going to come to their own decision on which medication is going to be the preferred first line option. I think in this space, uh, the intravitreal bevacizumab tends to be first, but after that, Mm -hmm. it's a, a big question mark, right? Yes. Yeah. And I appreciate you acknowledging that that, uh, that it does seem, I realize that for our managed care and for our participants here in this call and listening to this, um, uh, to this presentation, it seems very straightforward. If you've lived in managed care world A for a number of years, it seems very straightforward because you know it inside and out. But the doctors seeing so many patients on dozens and dozens of different plans that they and their team haven't been able to keep that straight and, and don't know as quickly. It's not as easy. That's another place AI and, uh, and Big Daddy may help us to be able to rapidly scrub through the system and go, yes, this is okay. We know this is approved. Absolutely. And then the question of, you know, is the medication required to come from a specialty pharmacy and uh, or can the provider buy and bill for that? That always um, adds another layer. I think specialty pharmacy is not overly involved uh, at this current moment with this uh, disease area, primarily given the sensitivity of the uh, route of administration of these medications, you really want to make sure that uh, patients are, are receiving as pure a product as they can, and there's no issues with transporting that medication and so forth. But we, we have seen in the past some, uh, many years ago at this point, but uh, some issues with the compounded bevacizumab, not so much anymore. Those thankfully have been worked out, knock on wood. But you know that that was something that was required for some time as the administration, or, uh, sorry, the dispensing of the medication to come from a specialty pharmacy and and it led to some issues. However, I will say, I think there is a push uh, moving towards that um, in in this space and for other medical benefit medications moving forward as well. Yes. Yes, I agree. And we have two other questions here. So the first is, can you discuss the impact of social determinants of health on AMD and DRDME? Are you seeing any disparities in care and or outcomes and, and what is being done to address those challenges? Great question. Thanks to our participant there. Yeah, this is uh, the socioeconomics of healthcare do remain a challenge regarding access to care. Sometimes it's the uh, medical insight or knowledge that uh, that one population may not have as robust in their in their background. They simply haven't had been exposed to that as much, or their historical trust barriers. I mean, most of us are familiar with the Tuskegee syphilis experience uh, in, for the black population and the abuse of trust in population studies in uh, even in uh, Native American Arizona more recently. It takes some time and commitment to overcome those historical experiences. 
and unfortunately, some of the genetically more severe strains of diabetics, retinopathy and diabetes itself are in our Hopi population, our Navajo population, and others. And they're at higher risk anyway, genetically, for the disease process. And some of those uh, other social determinants are overlaid on top of it. So in Arizona, at least, and other places, that's where I practice, and others around the country, sometimes distance, travel, living on the reservation, etc., and we have similar challenges to care for our immigrant population from Latin America in Arizona and the American Southwest and around the country, uh, remote towns or uninsured. I think as we're talking about the second half of the question you said about uh, what can be done to address these challenges, you know, I'm grateful for the medical education system we have in the U.S. It allows the supporting and training of resident physicians and fellows. Young doctors get a lot of their experience staffing remote clinics or a university clinic or a county or a VA hospital. And that gives very, very high quality cutting edge care to patients uh, in some of these environments. I'm also a clinical educator and I'm proud to have students. Um, but doctors in private practice can give as well. There's no need to go abroad for medical missions to make a big difference in the world, though I've done that and I do that and others do. And it gives a, a real blessing to other underserved parts of the world. But right in our own backyard, we, we've built, for example, my private practice has built state-of-the-art clinics in remote areas in Arizona by the reservations. Telemedicine, I alluded to this earlier, Steve, there's, you could have for a very modest investment of reimbursement by a payer, something like the IDX system, the IDX camera or other artificial intelligence camera, non-dilated cameras are being set up in remote labs or primary care clinics, and they take non-dilated fundus photographs and then the AI software screens for diabetic retinopathy. And that way the patient gets referred to an ophthalmologist or surgeon for further care. And if the payers can modestly reimburse for something like telemedicine images or IDX camera systems and screening images, we can get large populations who don't have access to care screened through and 90% of them don't need services and they're reassured that there's a percentage that then get in. So I think those are some ways we could we could partner and, and try and overcome some of these um, social determ um, determinants in healthcare access. That's so fascinating. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And um, one thing I want to point out, I, I read recently that uh, the idea of social determinants of health may be hopefully rebranded in the future as social drivers of health. It seems less predetermined, you know, the the yeah. outcomes when we, we use that term instead. So so hopefully we can continue to, to move towards a direction where we have that focus on those social drivers of health and we can drive them in a direction that, you know, impacts patients in a positive way. I like that term better. It speaks more to that, uh, to what we're trying to accomplish. And the final question that we received here, you mentioned a number of emerging therapeutic options in the pipeline. Which of these is closest to approval and which one do you see as transforming the management of AMD and DRDME to the greatest degree? That's a great question to kind of wrap up on, I think, because it... Um, you know, for many years, clinical trials have been testing uh, some of the newest medications, high dose of flibercept and the new dual mechanism of action, fericimab. These new medications with extended treatment are now FDA approved. Those just hit the market. Um, ILEA HD and Vobismo a little earlier are trade names. Those both have clinical evidence for extended treatment intervals with equivalent outcomes to the drugs that are given every four to six weeks. And so if we have a drugs that now you know, between 78 and the mid 90th percentile of these patients are being able to be treated every 12 to 16 weeks. 
Well, even if those medicines are a little bit more expensive from the payer side, we're now able to see patients get a dramatically reduced burden with equivalent clinical outcomes. That's exciting. Probably next in line would be the port delivery system, the PDS or SUSMIMO. It's been off the market for about a year with some revisions to the system are now complete, and it's likely going to be coming back on commercially as early as uh, early in 2024. And over 90% of patients with wet macular degenerations go six months or longer between treatments. That's a big difference compared to injections every four to six weeks. And the PDS will likely have diabetic macular edema or diabetic retinopathy approval in coming years. That's on the horizon. Gene therapy. There are several targets in phase two and phase three trials, Steve, uh, that may be next. I'm a clinical research principal investigator for several of these gene therapy studies, and it's exciting to see how that technology, even though it may be a few years away, it's very promising. So things to be looking for on the horizon. Yeah, thanks so much. I, I just want to follow up real quickly on on the one point that you made, the port delivery system for ranibizumab. Is there any um, thought about uh, ranibizumab um, given through that uh, port delivery system? I think just in general, ranibizumab has sort of fallen out of favor, but uh, it sounds like you know the, the port delivery system might offer sort of a, a breath of life to that, that compound. I think that it will, and not only delivery of ranibizumab, because even the, the tried-and-true 17-year FDA-approved ranibizumab injection, if we have a high concentration of it going through a port delivery system, we're getting patients in the DR studies, diabetic retinopathy, out to nine months in between interventions, and in the diabetic macular edema study, six months, and AMD, six months or more. Additionally, other molecules like the furisumab molecule is being studied as a dutafab and other molecules in the pipeline a few years away could be put into a sustained delivery. So if we take new molecules and new technologies and put those new molecules that already have proven benefit for longer duration and put those molecules through a sustained delivery device, now we're talking about extending treatments to where patients are getting a treatment once or in a year, once every nine months or longer. We'll see what the studies show, but that's exciting as a platform, not just the delivery of, of the one drug, ranibizumab. That is fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Graff. I would like to now conclude the webcast. And again, Dr. Graff, thank you for all of your insightful commentary. Once again, I would like to also thank Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Inc. for their support of this educational activity. To claim credit for today's program, please click the complete evaluation link in the activity. Once the evaluation is completed and submitted, you'll be able to select the type of credit that you require. And this concludes today's webcast. For more continuing education activities, please visit impacteducationsmanagecareeye.com. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day.